This Christmas isn't looking too hopeful right about now, is it? I mean, here we are, back online, back to not having in-person church. And that's discouraging. That's hard. Our government leaders, both provincial and federal, are not making any promises for Christmas. And for so many of us, Christmas is the highlight of the year. So the idea of not being able to gather, not being able to meet with friends and people, family, people that we love, it's just, it's discouraging. Some of you snowbirds are pretty discouraged too right about now, right? I think it was Beth H. who posted this on her Facebook feed this week. Snowbirds spending their first winter in Canada in 20 years and be shopping for Christmas coats like this. (laughs) Yeah. I hear you. I have a Facebook friend who lives in Mendoza, Argentina. And she's been complaining all week because they're in the middle of their summer. She's been complaining on Facebook all week about how hot it is where she lives. And it's hard to sympathize. Hard to have sympathy. Hard, hard, hard to have hope when the winter wind hurts your face. Hard to have hope when COVID is lurking. Hard to have hope. Well, well you could fill in the blank with your own personal stories of woe and misery, right? When we're in the middle of difficulties, when we're in the thick of it, when we're walking through this storm, it is hard to have hope. And this Advent season, our sermon series is called Second Chance Christmas. And this morning, this first Sunday in Advent, we spent a little bit of time thinking about hope. We light the first candle in the Advent wreath, the candle of hope, and we've sung about hope. Jesus is the hope living in us. Jesus is the hope of the nations. Jesus is our living hope, and we are inundated with the idea of hope. And some of us, who are still just a little cynical, we think to ourselves, hope? Man, the person that lives on hope is going to die starving. (laughs) Hope is the last bastion of the foolish. I mean, King Solomon was one of the wisest men ever, and he writes this in the book of Proverbs, hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's what happens when hope is messed up, Proverbs 13, 12. And Solomon's not alone. It's all throughout our Bibles. I mean, think about Elijah, the great prophet of God. He's so discouraged. He's so depressed. He's so empty of hope that he runs away. He runs out into the wilderness. He hides in a cave and he prays and he says, God, please kill me. Kill me. First Kings chapter 19. King David writes songs, and in one of his songs, the words for his song are like this. I am exhausted and completely crushed. My groans come from an anguished heart. Psalm 38, verse 8. This summer, we went through the Psalms of Asaph, and we hit Psalm 73 pretty much right away, and Asaph says, all I get is trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Sounds like our scriptures resonate with a little bit of this lack of hope. Even in the lives of great men of faith. Men who are singing that same kind of song that we sang this morning. Lord, just give me some faith. The Apostle Paul writes, hope 
doesn't disappoint. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, hope doesn't disappoint. And that's a verse that I, I don't always understand. I mean, I, I find hope hard to hang on to. I really do. I, I read the Peanuts cartoons and I can always identify with poor Charlie Brown who's, who's always trying to kick that football only to have Lucy pull it away at the last moment every single time. I can identify with that. I see Tigger and Winnie the Pooh and Piglet and I really try and be like them. Tigger's a wonderful thing. But what I find is that my inner Eeyore all too often rises to the surface. Oh, Pooh. Oh, Elaine, <laughs> hope feels elusive to me often, just as it sometimes does for the biblical writers. So which is it? Is hope an illusion or, or is, is hope a steadfast certainty? Is hope an ephemeral dream? Is it a vapor that just evaporates under the hot sun or, or, or is, it, is it an unassailable fact? Is hope a disease of our minds? Just a certain sick madness or is it a cardinal virtue? Is hope just a little bit of folly or is hope a precious pearl, a treasure beyond price. In times when my hope is low, I tend to think a little bit more about Jesus. So let's consider Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We're coming up on Christmas, the celebration of Jesus' birth, the incarnation of Jesus into this life. December is a time when we really try our best to, to keep Jesus uppermost in our thoughts, right? We try to do that for at least a month out of the year. And, and so as we think about Jesus, I ask you, how is it that Jesus is hopeful? How does Jesus find hope? Because his life is pretty messed up. I mean, think about the life of Jesus for just a moment. Born to die. Yay, that's a good life's goal, right? Born in squalor and misery, a manger for his bed. Born in a stable. Unwed parents. A flight to Egypt as a baby because the king is trying to kill him. That's not a great start to life, right? Later on in life, like Jesus is forever being uh, challenged by the Pharisees. They hate him. They're forever trying to catch him up in a lie. They're forever trying to discount his teaching. They're forever trying to expose him for the fraud that they think he is. How does he handle that? How does he handle that constant sense of judgment that he's continually subject to? I mean, when people attack me for something they think I've said, it it almost kills me. How does Jesus persevere when the religious leaders are so dead set against him? And think about his own followers, too. I mean, those guys, they're a messed up bunch, aren't they? I mean, seriously. John wants Jesus to call down fire on the unbelievers. Get them, Lord. Simon the Zealot is sitting there sharpening his sword, waiting for Jesus to start the revolution. Judas is stealing money from the common purse. Peter's totally misunderstanding everything. <laughs> Man, seriously, these guys, these are the people that Jesus is going to use to kickstart the greatest movement in the history of humanity? Seriously? They can't even stay awake for an hour. They can't keep from bickering about who's greatest in the kingdom. 
They can't figure out the simplest things about following Jesus. They are so much like me. So, how does Jesus hang on to hope? Not hope in his circumstances. Not hope in his religious faith. Not hope in his friends. Matthew 4.17, Jesus says, Turn from your sins and turn to God because the kingdom of heaven is near. It's near. Matthew 6.6, Jesus says, Your heavenly Father who sees all secrets, he sees yours and he will reward you. Luke eleven thirteen, 13, Jesus says, If you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Matthew 10, 26, Jesus says, Don't be afraid of those who threaten you. Don't be afraid, because the time is coming when everything will be revealed and all that is secret will be made public. Luke 10, 22, Jesus says, My Father has given me authority over all things. John 4, 34, Jesus says, my nourishment, my food comes from doing the will of God. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus says, with God, everything is possible. John 5, 17, Jesus says, my father is always working. These are just a small smattering of the words of Jesus. Jesus seemed to hang on to hope in his life. Not by looking at outward circumstances, but by placing his absolute faith, his complete trust, one truth, one reality, one main idea that overrode every other consideration in his life. He put all of his eggs in one basket. He risked it all in one turn of pitch and toss, to quote Rudyard Kipling, he, he went to Vegas, bet on love and let it ride, to quote Faith Hill. See, I told you I knew country songs. If it's a country song and it was on the charts in the 90s, I know it by heart. <laughs> hey, baby, let's go to Vegas. Here's the one truth. Here's the one foundation. Here is the absolute reality that gave Jesus the ability to trust when everybody else doubted him, to work when everyone else was working against him, to have hope when everything around him seemed hopeless. It was this bedrock foundational truth. God is in control. God's in control. Everything Jesus does is based on this truth that God is in control. Everything that Jesus says is built on this reality that God is in control. Every demon that he casts out, God is in control. Every false accusation that he faces, God is in control. Every hardship in his life, God is in control. Every disease that he cures, God is in control. Every dead person raised back to life again, God is in control. And man, I need to have that in my life. It has been a difficult time for so many of us. Hope feels tenuous. I was having a bad week this week. Awful week. Not even sure how I was going to be able to get up and preach about hope on Sunday when there seems so little of it in my own life and in my own brain this week. And I get to church on Friday morning and check my emails and there's the, the prayer email that Sylvia 
so faithfully sends out. It's waiting there. Well, she wrote that like a month and a half ago, but Friday, November 27th, because God is in control, we can do all things without grumbling or complaining. God calls us to rejoice in every situation. Philippians 2, 14, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Remember, God is in control. Also, pray for Richard and Dorothy. Thank you, Sylvia, for hearing God's words and sharing them with us. It was like God reaching down from his heavenly throne and patting me on my foolish, bald little head through Sylvia's email, and my heavenly father just says to me, relax, little dude, relax. I've got this. That's what Jesus hangs on to. That's what keeps Jesus sane in a world gone mad. That's what gives him hope. The reality that God is in control. My Father is always working. My Father is always working. So where are you at this morning? Are you on some mountaintop dancing and singing and praising God? Like, yay, life is good. Good for you. Go talk to Pastor Darren. He seems to spend a whole lot of time up there on the mountaintop. He is so unflaggingly enthusiastic. So good to have people like that in our lives. Thank you, Darren. Sometimes I borrow some of your faith. But if you're struggling just a little bit this morning, wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this, if the isolation is starting to get to you, or maybe you're struggling with the winter blues or, or the COVID stuff that's happening around us and hardly being able to keep up with new regulations or, or all the other niggling things that are happening in your life, all, all the little tiny irritations. Or, or maybe there's those one or two really big, really scary things that, that you can't escape. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, if you're feeling like somehow Pastor Nick has been reading your mind and exposing how you're feeling then I want you to know this. I want you to hang on to this. I want you to know this in your heart and in your soul to be true. That Jesus is your hope. See, the New Testament always ties our hope to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, there is no hope. And if you're struggling to hang on to hope in your own life, perhaps the best remedy is simply to go back to Jesus. He's your only chance at hope when you've descended into the pit of despair. The pit of despair. When the valley of death's shadow is your journey. When the black dog of depression has been stalking you. When your hope feels like a distant memory. Jesus is your second chance at hope. So let's just take a moment and talk a little bit about how we can take our faith in Jesus, our trust in Jesus, and build a little bit more of hope in our lives.
Many of you who live with depression probably have a list of a whole bunch of things that you need to look after. You need to be uh, forever looking after these things, the medication, your diet, your exercise, how much you sleep and how regular your sleep is, how much sunshine you get. I have, I have a similar list to that in my own home. But for us Christians, my goodness, we have a really important tool at our disposal that we simply don't use enough. And it's the Word of God. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, verse 17. And so I want to give you three ways to anchor your hope and to build it up in Jesus Christ. Number one is just take the time to remember all the fulfilled promises that God makes about Jesus. All of them fulfilled. One of the reasons why I love the Old Testament so much is because the first two-thirds of our Bible, before Jesus even comes, it's all about Jesus. I love that. It foreshadows and it predicts Jesus. The, the first two-thirds of our Bible, before Jesus even, before the first Christmas even comes, it is all about Jesus. And scholars disagree about how much, but they generally fall in the category of about 200 to 400 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah's first coming 200 to 400 of them sprinkled throughout these pages and consider how specific some of them are that only Jesus could have fulfilled them Jesus would be a descendant of Abraham Genesis 22:18 Jesus would be from the line of Judah Genesis 49:10 Jesus would be a descendant of David Isaiah 11 verse 1 Jesus would only come after Jerusalem had been destroyed and then rebuilt Daniel 9:25 Jesus would be born out of all the towns that he could have been born in he was going to be born in Bethlehem Micah 5:2 Jesus was going to be born to a virgin Isaiah 7:13 and 14 Jesus would perform miracles in his ministry Isaiah 35, verse 4 to 6. When Jesus taught, he would teach in stories. He would tell parables. Psalm 78, verse 1 and 2. Jesus would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9, 9. Jesus would be rejected, not accepted, but rejected by the religious leaders. Isaiah 53, verse 1 to 4. Jesus would be beaten and spat upon. It talks about spitting on him. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 and 7. Jesus' hands and Jesus' feet would be pierced. Psalm 22, verse 16. They would cast lots for his clothing. How crazy is that? How specific is that? Psalm 22, verse 18. Jesus would pay the penalty for everyone's sin, Daniel 9, 24, through his death, Isaiah 53, 8 and 9. Even though he was the Son of God, Psalm 2, verse 1 to 12. Even though Jesus would die, his body would not decay like all of ours do when we die, Psalm 16, verse 9 to 11, because Jesus was going to rise from the dead, Psalm 16, verse 10. The name of Jesus will be preached to the whole earth, Micah 5, verse 4, even to non-Jews like me, Isaiah 11, verse 10. He, Jesus will have an eternal kingdom, 2 Samuel 7, and Jesus will offer salvation to all humanity, Isaiah 49, verse 6. I mean, I just gave you 22 prophecies about Jesus in just a minute and a half or whatever that took. There's hundreds of them in the Bible. This is the one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. This is the deliverer who comes in hope and who came in hope the first time and who will come again in hope one day in the future. So if you want to build up your own hope, that's a good place to start. 
all the ways that God has already kept his promises. All the fulfilled prophecies about Jesus that are littered in the pages of our Bible. Now secondly, because our hope is always anchored in the past, anchored in the past, looking forward to the future, you also want to look for hope and build hope based on God's work in your own life. You remember God's greatness and his faithfulness in your own life. You remember how God was reaching out to you long before you ever even knew his name. You remember the miraculous ways that God has intervened to save you when you are in dangerous places. Remember the forgiveness that he gives you, not just the first time, when you accepted him into your life as your savior, I mean, remember the forgiveness that he had to forgive you for that awful thing that you did last year. Remember the forgiveness that he's offering you for for what you did last week or what you did this morning. That forgiveness is just incredible. Remember how you needed compassion, love that's never failing. Mercy, fall on me. Remember that. And remember when you needed compassion and you needed love, he gave it to you. Over and over and over, he gives you his love. Remember how he's blessed you. The specific ways that he has brought plenty into your life. Whatever that is for you. It might be your spouse or your children, your grandchildren, your family, the friends who stick by you, the the health that you enjoy. Just take the time to remember his blessings because in Jesus Christ, God has been good to you. You know, a few weeks ago, we, we sang that song, Do It Again. It's a new song for us and there's a line in that song that, that we talked about as a worship team. You've never failed me yet. And that doesn't mean that you're thinking about the future and you're thinking that there's a possibility at some point in the future that he might actually drop the ball and fail you. No, that's not the point of the song. The point of the song is that you're looking back in your life. You're looking back in your past. And even though you see in your past that there's been some failure, there's been some sin, there's been some circumstances that you don't get, And maybe you won't get them until he returns. There's all of these things in your past you can say without a doubt that he's never failed you. You failed him. And you've sinned. And maybe you don't always understand what he was up to in all the things that he allowed to happen in your past. But he's never failed you yet. And so as you look at your past, your own life, and you see his goodness, you have the ability to put your trust in him for the future. Because he's never failed you yet. He's always come through. So you build your faith and you anchor it in the past. The past of God's word and the promises and the prophecies about Jesus. The past of God's work and Jesus' amazing gifts in your own life. And then the third way that you build your hope is you remember God's promises for the future. A lot of you like to listen to David Jeremiah. David Jeremiah says this, People are often surprised to learn that references to the second coming of Jesus actually outnumber references to his first coming by a factor of eight to one. 
Like for every Old Testament prophecy about Jesus born in a manger, about Jesus dying on a cross, there's eight of them about Jesus coming back again one day. Scholars have identified 1,845 different biblical references to the second coming of Jesus. That's according to David Jeremiah. So, I mean, I, I could take the next four hours and, 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 and do all 1,845, but I, I just want you to close your eyes for a moment and just listen to Scripture. Listen to one beautiful prophecy. A guy named Daniel who lived his whole life in exile, never even got to live in the promised land, always looking forward in hope. And this is what Daniel writes. He says, In my vision I watched as thrones were put into place and the Ancient One sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sits on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire is pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels minister to him. Many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session, and the books were opened. And as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence, and he was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and every nation and every language would obey him, and his rule is eternal. It will never end, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. What a day that will be. Do not lose your hope, my friends, because God is in control and Jesus is coming back. I want to close with a little bit of a story. The Reverend William E. Sanger ministered in London during the Great War, during World War II. He was in London while the city was being absolutely devastated by the bombs of, of Hitler's Nazi Germany. And at times when Sangster was preaching, bombs were being dropped on the city Sunday mornings. And he would tell his congregation, if you're afraid, you can go home and hide, but I will continue to preach God's gospel. And this week, because I was feeling so little hope of my own, I found a sermon of Sangster's online about hope. He gave it during Christmas, 1939, 1942, somewhere in there, and it encouraged me. It reminded me about Jesus, and it gave me hope. And so I want to close my sermon with the way that he closed his sermon. He says, already one nation has been entirely engulfed in the bloody tide of this worldwide war. Others may share this fate, our own nation even, but justice and righteousness shall not vanish from the face of the earth. Out of the chaos of these times and by the bitter agony of this doubly afflicted generation, the will of God will ultimately be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
He will never leave us or forsake us as scriptures promise. The cross is the pledge of that. In those moments of unmeasurable horror, when we fear that even God's patience will be exhausted with this wicked race and all the windows of heaven will be closed from within against the scenes of earth, let us repair again to Calvary. Let us go back to the cross because here is the ground of unquenchable hope. He will never forsake the world of his incarnation and his sacrificial death. God is on the throne. Truth is indestructible. Jesus still saves. When the shallow hopes of the world and all of its false messiahs are all dead, look to Jesus. And put your hope in God. Amen.